About eight years ago, Mike and I had the boys, and it was just the two older boys at the time. We took them up to Paul's Creek. And it was in the springtime, and we're all wearing jackets, and, and it's a nice day, pleasant day and everything. And Dustin, being eight years old at the time, and knew more than anybody else, he saw the creek and he said, uh, I'd like to go play in the creek. And, of course, being the, the grandpa and dad that we are, looking out for the, for the health and well-being of our grandson, that's not a good idea. It's pretty cold. The water's cold. I mean, even though it's a nice day, it's pretty cold out there. And he said, oh, no, that water's not cold. It's just fine. Now, his younger brother knew better. I think Dylan was about four at the time. Dylan knew better. He had, didn't want anything to do with that creek and that cold water. But Dustin kept insisting. So we saw it as kind of a teachable moment. And we said, okay, fine. So we took his shoes off, rolled his pants up. Go ahead and, and jump in there and have a good time. And he ran in there and got, he got all wet and everything. And boy, about a minute or two, he came out. That was all it took. And uh, lesson learned. And that's kind of what we're going to get into today. Uh, we're going we're gonna to get into 1 Samuel chapter 8. And uh, we're going to peel back that onion and see what's going on. So let's go ahead and pray. And then we'll get into the text and, and see what God is, is wanting us to learn today. So join me in prayer, please. Lord, we thank you for your word and for revealing yourself through the scriptures. Be with me as I present this chapter. I pray that my efforts glorify your name and faithfully teach your word. And I ask that you bless us in this study. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So a little bit of preface before we get into the text. Uh, we're in 1 Samuel 8. And those of you that were here in ancient times when Justin did the study on Judges, you'll understand that this is the bridge between Judges and the monarchy in Israel. So the Judges, if you recall, they were the, the leaders from Joshua up to the point where, they, where Israel got a king. So Samuel is one of the last Judges. He is the last Judge. And... Uh, so the first part of 1 Samuel talks about his rise and what he was doing. And then we get up to chapter 8, or I mean verse, uh, uh, or yeah, chapter 8. And Israel is going to do something that that's, we should expect, but it's kind of unexpected. They're going to ask for a king. So let's read through this, and then we'll get into, uh, into the study. So when Samuel became old... He made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt 
even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so that they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make him implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to your servant, to his servants. He will take tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Recall in Judges, that's kind of the cycle that we saw in Judges, that they would cry out, God would send them help, and then that would cycle. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us. And we will also be like all the nations, and our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in, their ears, in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. So what's going on here? What's the problem? Why, why, are Samuel, why is Samuel upset? Why is God coming up with what he's talking about? So Samuel's biggest problem was that he made his sons into judges. That's not how it worked. That was a, that was a big problem because that was, that's how you do it when you have a king. You have you know, a hierarchy. You have your sons take over from you. Samuel made his sons king or judges. And then the other problem was these guys weren't very good guys. They were taking bribes. They were, they were really bad, bad off. And so this request was really not off base so much. The fact of the matter was they didn't want to be, they didn't want to be judged by these bad people. So the elders come up and they request a king. And that's in verse 4. And then we go to verses 6 through 9. And you, and you heard Samuel's and God's response. So Samuel's first response is, they're not listening to me. They don't, they don't want to do what I want to do. They're disrespecting me. Okay? And God comes back and says, no, no, that's not what's happening. They're disrespecting me. They're disrespecting me because... It's a pattern. We see this all the time. And God outlines this. He says, they started out in Egypt. They started out disrespecting me in Egypt, and I've been there, and then there, you, know, you know the story. There's just all these times where they build idols, and 
you know, then the need for the judges because they, they just kept falling all over themselves and God kept taking care of them. But God is saying, they are disrespecting me. And that's a big, and that's, uh, that's a big problem. So was God's response unexpected? When I first read that, I thought, yeah, you know, <laughs> why is he fooling around with these guys? Why doesn't he just, one fell swoop, just, just knock them out? But, the, but it was kind of unexpected that he would say, give them what they want, just like we did with Dustin. Dustin wants to go in water, we're going to put him in the water, okay? So it was kind of an unexpected response. And then in verses eight, 10 through 18, then Samuel gives the warning. And what's really interesting is, you see the word take six different times in this. He, he keeps reminding them, they're gonna, he, the king's going to take this, he's going to take that. He's going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters, he's going to take your crops. Is this what you really want to do? <laughs> and then their response is, yeah, because we want a king, and we want a king like all the other nations. So what's wrong with this? What's the problem? Can't they, can't they have a king? What's the deal? Well, actually, there is, an, there is a plan for this. If you go to Deuter, if you pull up Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 16, God outlines the plan for having a king. If you're coming up behind me there, yep. And he says, I will set a king over like all the nations that are... See, they use the same words that are in Deuteronomy. This is how they're trying to sell their case. They're using Deuteronomy to sell their case to Samuel. But if you look at this, there's some caveats that, that it's easy to miss, but I don't think they missed it. I'm finding it in my Bible here so I don't have to look behind me. So he says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. Notice what was missing here. So the elders went right to Samuel. Did they, did they consult God at all? No, not at all. They went right ahead, went right to Samuel to give us a king. That's not what was outlined in Deuteronomy. They knew better than that. The king will be chosen among your brothers, and he talks about uh, who, who can and cannot be the king. And then there's something very interesting in verse 16. He says, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt. What's, what's the big deal about horses? Horses pull chariots. Horses are ridden by soldiers. So the implication here is that he doesn't, God does not want them to have a king who's a warrior. And why is that? Because if you look through the history of Israel, who, was, who took care of them in terms of army, you know, uh, fighting, fighting other uh, countries and stuff like that? What did, he, what did he do? God was the one that was the general. God was the one in charge of that. He didn't, they didn't have to have a, a king who was a general to lead the armies, and he specifically did not want them to have someone who was going to 
lead. So, they, so they're not even listening to God's word in Deuteronomy. That's a big problem. And then, they, and then they rejected God. So because all this that God has done for them, he's taken them out of the desert. He's provided for them, or he's taken them out of Egypt. He's provided them in the desert. He's done all this stuff for them. And instead of acknowledging that and saying, thanks, God, for taking care of us, what do they say? Thank you very much. We want a king. And rejects God. And uh, that, that's a big problem. The other problem is that they want to be part of the world. And they mention that several times. So we want a king like everybody else. Okay, if you look at, uh, there's a couple places in here, Leviticus 19.2. God's planned for a king all along. Okay? But he wants his people to be separate. Okay? You hear this all throughout scriptures, that God's people are separate from the world. We'll show a couple examples of that. This is one of them. Okay? You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And you can say separate. You can use instead of holy, you can say separate or apart. And that's God's intention. Another reference to that is Psalm 33, uh, 12. Don't have it? Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is Lord and the people who he has chosen for his heritage. God is intended for his people to be separate. Now they're just turning right around and saying, but we want to be like everybody else. We want to have a king. We want to be like everybody else. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, a big problem. So this is the problem that Samuel has and ultimately God has is... is how this has been done. So it's not a problem of them having a king. It's a problem of their mindset and how they're going about getting a king. Okay? That's the problem. So when you take a look at this, and you look at God's response, you got to ask, was God played on this? I mean, did they set God up for this? So in other words, they quoted Deuteronomy we want a king, and it appears as though God's kind of given in. You know, was he played? Um, did he give in to their request and just throw up his hands and say, I've had enough of you guys, you got it. You know, sometimes we do that with kids. Kids keep badging you about something. You say, okay, fine, go ahead. So is this something, is this something that God is doing? Did God give in? Well, if you look through the Old Testament, you will see that God's had a plan for a king all along. That goes way back to Genesis. There's a couple of references in Genesis that talk about it. Genesis 17, 3, 6. Go ahead to the next And you're familiar with this, but he says, And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Okay? Way back in Genesis, we've been talking about kings. God's had a plan for kings all along. Okay? Go to Genesis uh, 
3511, please. And there it is. And, it's, and at the end there, and kings shall come from your, well, yeah, okay, we, we said that. And then in Numbers 24, 24 7. And you can see here the same thing. He mentions, mentions kings and numbers. So this isn't something new. This isn't plan B. This isn't God saying, oh, wait a second, I had this all wrong. You know, I was their king, and then I had judges, and you know what, that's not working. These guys have got a great idea. Let's go to plan B. That's not, that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is God's had a plan all along. We see God's plan unfolding, okay? But then these guys come in, and they kind of they mess themselves up by asking for a king and wanting to be part of the nations and all that kind of stuff. And, and so, basically, God's given them what they're asking for. So why does God answer in this fashion? Take a look at a pattern. Look at Psalm 106, verses 7 through 15. And what's, what the psalmist is talking about here, he's talking about, and I'll read this. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember your abundance or your, of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet you saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. They, he rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as though a desert. And he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversities. Then they believed his words and sang his praise. But then they soon forgot his works and they did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. And it goes on and on. But you see the pattern here. This is what these guys have been doing all along. Okay? So... God has given them what they asked for. If you go to Romans 1, 21, 24, Paul talks about this as well. Handing them over to what they're asking for. And I think if you read this here, you'll see uh, what Paul's talking about. It's kind of the same thing. God has given them what they're asking for. By golly, if you want it, I'm going to give it to you. But it's not giving in, rather. I think what this is, is it's being used as a teaching method. I think what he's doing is teaching them. Obviously, God's got a lot of patience. Because if you look at the psalm we just read, uh, you'll see that there's many times that he could have just thrown his hands up and said, I've had enough. You guys are gone. (laughs) But uh, he's given them what they're asking for. And also, I think what he's doing is, not only is he teaching them, but he's disciplining them. And we know that God disciplines, and we look at Psalm 39.11, and this talks about God disciplining. So make no mistake about it, if you, if you err, God will discipline you. But he's also patient, he's compassionate. But he will teach his children. Okay, so now we look at this and we say, Geez, those knucklehead Israelites, I mean, they just don't get it. How could they be so stupid? How is it that they can 
time after time. They, they get it wrong. God corrects them. Then they start down the right path, and then guess what? They're messing up again, those knucklehead Israelites. But you know what? We're basically the same way. And there are times when the Israelites didn't trust God and shifted their trust to something else. Now, why do you suppose they wanted a worldly king? I mean, they had God. God was their king. Why do you suppose they wanted a worldly king? They had it all. Well, I could suggest to you that they wanted a worldly king because that's what they could see. The Israelites could see chariots. They could see horses. They could see swords. They could see what they had in front of them. They put their trust in what they could see. But God doesn't necessarily work that way. And a lot of times, you don't see what God's doing, but a lot of times how he manifests himself comes later in the game. So like the party in the Red Sea, I mean, he didn't come out, he didn't send him a telegram and say, all right, at this time, if you go to the Red Sea, I will part it for you, you can walk through. He, he didn't do that. He didn't telegraph that to them. They didn't know that until they got there. And then all of a sudden, the Red Sea parted. So you can think of a lot of when they were starving in the desert. Hey, we don't have any food. God didn't, you know, there wasn't a courier that came up in a chariot and said, hey, relax, we got you covered. We're going to send you some food, just, just hang tight. So it just happened. So it's hard to put your trust in something that you're not seeing, and it's easier to put your trust in things that you do see. Look at what we put our trust in, you know, for our security. We put our trust in bank accounts, okay? We put our trust in how many friends we have maybe on Facebook. We put our trust in a lot of the stuff that we can get our heads around. But it's very hard for us to put our trust in something that we cannot see. So we have to ask ourselves the question, do we reject God for our idols? Do we do that? I mean, so are we, are we so quick to jump on the Israelites that we don't look at ourselves and say, Man, we're guilty of the same thing? We put our trust in things that we shouldn't be putting our trust in. And that goes back to what they were doing. They, they didn't trust God. They wanted the chariots and they wanted the horses and all that kind of stuff. But we've got to remember, this was, if you were in our Wednesday night Bible studies, this is something that, this was the big takeaway from the whole two books of Samuel, is God is sovereign. Right, Glenn? God is sovereign. We've got to understand that. We've got to understand that everything that happens in this world, God has intended it to be that way. And we've got to trust that. We've got to trust that he's sovereign. We've got to learn to trust God. And uh, get, put up Psalm uh, 118, 8 and 9, please. It says right there in the psalm, better to trust God than it is to trust man. And that's something that hard, it's hard to get our hands around. It's hard to get our, our you know. Uh, Psalm 146, 3 and 4, please. Same thing. 
Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man who is there, whom there is no salvation. Oh, the son of man. You know, there's also a plan, another plan that God had. So God, you know, God had plans to take care of his people all the way through. He's taking care of his people with kings. But ultimately, God has come up with the plan of salvation. And that's another one that's kind of hard to get your head around. And, and uh, So wait a second. So if I ask forgiveness for my sins, and I put my faith in Jesus Christ, you mean to tell me that I can share in the rewards of heaven? I mean, what, what are you talking about here? I mean, aren't I t- if, if I'm just a nice person, if I've got a lot of money in the bank and I can retire easily, isn't, isn't that the way? That's, that's better, isn't it? But the plan of salvation is, just, is so simple, but yet we have a hard time getting our heads around it. We have a hard time trusting it. There's a lot of people out there that, that don't trust that. And that's ultimately what our job is, to try to get them to trust that, to understand that. And that's why we're called out to spread the word. So God's got a plan. God has always had a plan. God's plan is trustworthy. And we need to trust God's plan. And if you pull up Romans 8, 28, this is, this is probably the icing on the cake. And everybody, I think, is familiar with this, but I'll go ahead and read it. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, also glorified. And that's it in a nutshell. So, the exhortation is just to trust God. Trust God. So if you'll pray with me, please. Lord, we thank you for this word, and we thank you for the fact that you do have a plan for our salvation, just like you had a plan for the Israelites to eventually give them, give them a king of your choosing. I pray that we learn to trust you, that we learn to study your word, learn your word so that that builds the trust that we have in you. Thank you for this congregation. I thank you for everything, all the blessings that you bestow upon us. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.